This is The Political Scene, a weekly conversation with New Yorker writers and guests about politics. It's Thursday, March 26th. I'm Dorothy Wickenden, executive editor of The New Yorker. In the past month, the cultural lives of America's cities have come to a halt. Theaters, cinemas, museums, and galleries have been shut down. Theatrical productions, concerts, book talks, and performances of all kinds have been canceled. Many people involved in the arts, freelancers without salaries or health insurance, currently have no source of income. This dire financial reality and the desire to continue working have inspired artists and entertainers across the country to approach their creative endeavors in new ways. 24-Hour Plays, an organization that has produced live theater all over the world, has launched a viral monologue series featuring monologues that are quickly written, rehearsed, recorded, and released on Instagram TV. Participants include Oscar nominee Michael Shannon, Tony winner David Diggs, and Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright Stephen Adley Gerges, whose monologue about a yoga class turned sour is performed by the TV star Andre Royo. All I said was, I like old Joe, and I'm not certain Bernie can win. And boom! Yoga bitches going wild. L.A. motherfuckers. L.A. yoga motherfuckers. These Bernie bros and their Bernie hoes. These rich, homeowning, SVU-driving revolutionaries. They lost their mind. They're going to ask me to leave, and they stole my yoga mat. I want my yoga mat. It's that big, pink, oversized one. Alexandra Schwartz and Emily Witt, two New Yorker staff writers, join me to discuss how people who work in the arts are being affected by the coronavirus pandemic and how, even isolated in their homes, many are redefining the nature of performance. Hi, Alex and Emily. Welcome to you both. Hi, Dorothy. Great to be here virtually. So, Alex, that monologue, which you brought to my attention, I'm very grateful to you for that. It really gave me my first good laugh in days. Yes. But uh, <laughs> you're a theater critic, and you're suddenly deprived of one of your greatest pleasures, leaving your apartment for Broadway to see a new show, and really being part of an audience experiencing the vicarious excitement of a live performance. Could you talk a little bit about the instantaneous vanishing of New York's performance ecosystem? Absolutely. Um, It's been surreal, as it has been, I know, for people in every field, for people all over the country. The theater was there one minute and gone quite literally the next. That is exactly what it felt like. I, I was just, I think like everyone, I'm losing track of time here. So I keep saying to myself as some way to to root myself in actual time, Three weeks ago, I was at the theater. Four weeks ago, I was at the theater. I saw I saw three shows right before the theaters closed. And what did you see? Well, the very last things I saw, one of them I wrote about in my previous column for the magazine, although by the time my column came out, the play itself had closed, which felt like a real tragedy. It was a play called Endlings by Celine Song at the New York Theater Workshop. Also, immediately after that, went out to have a solo pizza by myself, already feeling, should I be eating in a restaurant? Um, And then a couple of days later, I went to see Six, the musical, which is, or is hopefully to be once it opens, let's hope, um, uh, an hour-long musical, really more like a pop concert about Henry VIII's six wives. 
already this thing has been a phenomenon in London and the audience, as far as I could see, was mostly made up of tweens and teens who already know all the songs, were singing along, were going wild for this thing, had lined up around the block to get into the theater. So thinking about that after I saw it, you just began to realize that it was not going to be possible for these kinds of gatherings to go on. And sure enough, uh, I had actually written a little bit about six in, in my column. And right before we were going to press, the sixth, the, the production emailed to say, please don't include it because the show is not going to open. So it really was one minute to the next. So the viral monologues are fantastic. What are some of the other ways that artists and organizations are, are adapting? Everybody is scrambling to figure this out right now. There is a lot of recorded theater from the past, and I see different organizations trying to make that available to the public, which I think is really great. Today, the National Theatre in England has said that every Thursday at 7 p.m. UK time, they're going to make a new production available to the public on their YouTube channel. Um, LA Theatre Works in LA is putting up streaming productions and also audio. They have a Wendy Wasserstein play up right now that you can listen to. Uh, the Rattlestick Theatre in New York City is has managed to record the production that was supposed to open called The Siblings Play. People are people are trying to make this work, which I hugely appreciate. And I do think it's probably a moment also to go into the archives. I just signed up for Broadway HD, which is a Broadway streaming service. I'm about to watch the original Sweeney Todd with Angela Lansbury. So, you know, for people who miss being in the theater, it's hard. In fact, it's impossible to actually replicate that experience, but it does feel good to to engage with that world even while we're at home. So, Emily, you've been looking into the financial devastation that many people in the arts are facing. You know, writers, dancers, actors, musicians, art teachers, art gallery employees, the list goes on and on. Even in normal times, the performing arts are among the most precarious professions. What are you hearing from actors, dancers, and others? Yeah, I mean, on those first days when everything got canceled, which I think were March 11th and March 12th, I didn't even realize how many friends I have that make a living in these kind of micro scenes in New York, whether they teach music or they DJ or they perform as a drag performer in nightclubs, you know, people that aren't on Broadway necessarily, but still make a little living for themselves in the arts. And it was just you know, looking at social media in those days, it was just total devastation and really extreme anxiety about how they were going to pay their bills and and even buy groceries in the coming weeks. You also, Emily, talked to the playwright and theater director, Daniel Goldstein, and he had some interesting things to say. Yeah, uh, Daniel is his day job as, as an associate director on the Broadway play Come From Away, but he's also a playwright and he had a show opening, a musical called The Unknown Soldier that was just in its opening week at Playwrights Horizon, the week that everything got canceled. And what he told me and what's true is that actors and musicians and performing artists are the original gig workers. They've always worked week to week, um, you know, unless you work for some kind of institution and you're, or you're in a company, you've, you've gone from gig to gig and that's how you make a living. And our safety net doesn't really cover a lot of those jobs. 
Yeah, he talked about himself as as a handyman, and you know it's a very good analogy. New York's paid sick leave law does not cover contract workers, and freelancers in the arts have really high self employment taxes, as you've mentioned, and health insurance costs. You know they don't have four hundred one ks, no disability insurance. It's really really something. Yeah, it's a part of our economy that just doesn't get formal recognition in a lot of ways. What are, Emily, what are artists doing to compensate for these lost jobs? Well, in the initial aftermath, what happened was a lot of grassroots fundraising on websites like GoFundMe. So the first fundraising site that I saw came from Seattle, um, and that was just crowdsourced money that was providing direct cash grants to artists. And then those sprang up all around the country and really in every genre. So if you're into bluegrass music or jazz or you're, you know, into dance, there's a, I promise there's a GoFundMe site for it. Um, and, And those sites were really important to fill the gap as institutions and foundations who have a longer lag time scrambled to figure out better solutions. So now, a couple of weeks later, you're seeing major nonprofits like Dance NYC or the Grammys or Actors Equity getting foundational support and organizing their own, you know, emergency funds. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, I'll talk with our Washington correspondent about the many political battles being waged in the Capitol over how to deal with the coronavirus. You couldn't imagine a president personalizing a crisis with a virus. But somehow that's that's where we are. Susan Glasser, this week on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. New York's performing arts scene has been damaged before. We saw it in the aftermath of 9-11 and Hurricane Sandy. But we haven't ever seen closures on this scale. And of course, no one knows when cultural institutions will be able to open again. What are you hearing about that, Alex? I think it's an open question and no one really knows what to think about it. I mean, one of the major psychological challenges of COVID-19, especially in the performing arts community, is that we are the risk to each other. That's a situation that's totally different than uh, it was during Hurricane Sandy or after 9-11, that the idea of sitting next to a stranger, which to me is something that gives me great pleasure. It also can be, I want to say before we sentimentalize this too much, a huge annoyance, but I'm, I'm finding I'm even missing the annoyance of the guy chewing gum next to me or someone sort of coughing nearby. These are human moments. These are the reasons we go to the theater. And given how jumpy everyone is, now, and I think will continue to be, it's hard to imagine what it will be like for everyone to come together in that kind of enclosed space again. That said, I'm really looking forward to the moment when it can happen. Yeah, I mean, there's no timeline in place. And and for me, a few days after all this started, it really set in that the places that I'm missing are not just going to reappear and reconstitute themselves if, if and when we, we are able to gather together again, that a lot of these small venues, these underground spots in New York, which is, you know, why we live here, because we get to access all of these things, you know, a lot of them aren't going to make it, people are going to leave town, you know, they're not going to be able to afford their rent. And it, it's just, it's a, it's a tragedy. But like Alex, I just look forward to the day 
when we all get to hang out together again. One thing that Americans are experiencing for the first time in a very long time is the the function of the national government. Uh, so the Senate stimulus bill passed unanimously last night, but only after a failed attempt by Lindsey Graham, Rick Scott, Ben Sass, and Tim Scott to reduce the unemployment benefits it contained. They complained that the provision would incentivize people, as they put it, not to return to work. So as of this recording, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has promised to get the bill pushed through the House on Friday, and I'm sure that will happen. For the very first time, as I understand it, it expands jobless aid to freelancers and gig workers. And I wonder, Alex, if you could talk a little bit about that and and whether it'll be enough to keep them going. Well, I think it's hard to say whether it will be enough. It will depend very much on how long this goes on, on how long people are forced out of work. Um, It's a very tenuous and precarious situation. And while I am extremely glad and grateful that something is being offered to freelancers, to gig workers, to workers in general, it's nerve wracking to, to see how limited that amount is. The other thing I would say is, about the concern that people would be incentivized not to work because they'd be so glad for these government handouts. First of all, that's insulting uh, to workers. Second of all, just talking about the creative fields that completely misunderstands why people go to work. People go to work in the creative professions and the performing arts, in the technical professions and the performing arts, in all of these things for, for love of the game, uh, for, for passion. It's, it sounds like a cliche, but it's really true. There's, there's no other reason to do some of this crazy stuff, to fly by the seat of your pants, even in the best of times. People do this for passion. And as we're seeing in now in New York City, it's not just self-interest. This is something, this is an economy that keeps the city going. This is a, a world that people depend on for their own inner lives and spiritual lives. This is a major thing, uh, the very least I think that the government can do is to offer some kind of reassurance to people who are out of work that that they can get through this. Yeah, I I mean as I understand it the stimulus basically allows gig workers to earn what they earned before using a formula that is usually used after natural disasters. It's called the Disaster Unemployment Assistance Program. So hopefully under that people will be able to earn what they were earning more or less at least for a while. And then they'll also be eligible for this $600 weekly benefit that the federal government is going to give to people who earn less than $75,000 a year. And as far as funding for institutions, uh, there's some in there. This was very contested by Republicans that there were tw- there was $25 million for the Kennedy Center for the Arts, which is essentially a federal agency. It's It's funded by congressional appropriation. So without any money, that place would just disappear. Alex, I wanted to hear a little bit more from you about the innovative and also occasionally slightly creepy things people are creating. So you've written a piece for the magazine that I got a sneak preview of and will appear in the magazine next week. And you talk about ASMR, which has been around for a while, but has pretty much been confined to a kind of digital netherworld. What is it and why has it become more popular right now? Yes, I wrote about ASMR because in looking at performances that actors were making on Instagram and other live platforms, I thought about what it means to be an audience member with this sort of one-to-one ratio where 
it's just you in your home and it's just the performer in their home and you're looking directly at them. They're speaking directly to their camera. And I thought of ASMR, which is an internet genre that it is a netherworld, but it's a, it's a big one. There are, there are millions of people watching these videos. Um, I guess the best way to describe it is as a subculture of YouTube video that people make in order to help other people relax. The idea is that certain triggers, as they're called, maybe whispering, maybe tapping with long fingernails on a computer keyboard, maybe popping gum or even um, bubble wrap, will produce sounds that that trigger a certain um, relaxation in other people. So these videos are weird. I will say that. I've been watching them for years. This is sort of my opportunity to come out in the pages of The New Yorker uh, as not just a theater critic, but also my own kind of internet weirdo. <laughs> um, but they're, they're creative in a very niche and strange way. You know, in other times, we want performance really to unsettle us, to shake us out of the way we're used to living our lives, to challenge our complacency. We're challenged right now, and we are looking for something else. We are looking to be comforted and to be relaxed and to be soothed as we try to get through this thing. So these performers, ASMR performers, or as uh, the technical term I will say is ASMR artists, are trying to calm people down. And one subgenre, sure enough, of these videos that has popped up are coronavirus ASMR videos. So we will be doing a few tests on you. The first one we are going to do is the strep throat test to see if you have strep throat. And the way this will work is if you don't have strep throat, we are going to go ahead and test you for a some kind of bacterial infection in your lungs. Um, and then after that, if they both come back negative, we are going to test you for the coronavirus, COVID-19. Um, so the next, you just have to, the next few steps, you just have to be patient. Don't overwork yourself. Um, you know, so some people will find this very strange, I'm well aware, but others may take comfort from it, and that's the hope. Stepping back from these immediate creative responses, I've been wondering about the long-term effects of this lockdown. And, you know, as you mentioned earlier, Alex, you can tape theater and screen it and stream it, and that's fantastic. It gives more people access to shows. It's a wonderful thing to do that when we can't get out of the house. But it is only a facsimile of the real thing. And I wanted to ask what you think about the ways in which we, how the ways in which we consume art will be changed over the long term. Well, one thing I'm wondering right now is for playwrights, what they will write during this period of confinement. Uh, the 24-hour viral monologues are already one response to that. And the answer is in the name. They're monologues. That's the technology that we have available right now. Um, people performing monologues to us. And I wonder, as playwrights sit at home and think, if they'll be tempted to keep going with the monologue form, I could see that coming out of this. I could also see the reverse. People who want to make big ensemble pieces, as if, if you can only paint with blue for a month, you suddenly want to use every color of the rainbow. So I'm very curious to see what will come out of that. Yeah, I mean, one thing that people... I interviewed mentioned to me was that in other times of recession, what happens 
afterward is companies get really conservative with what they choose to produce and it, they go back to crowd pleasers and they're not so into trying new things or weird things, you know, plays that tend to favor the establishment, which is also traditionally, you know, white men. <laughs> and so there's a lot of fear that the small piece that, somebody takes a risk on that's only seen by a hundred people that eventually becomes a major Broadway play, which just won't, won't be seen. So there's a lot of fear around that, I think. On the other hand, you could see a, a version of that where th some of these things take off that would not have been thought to be terribly successful. And perhaps that will have a, you know, emboldening effect. Yeah. And what might happen in New York if rents go down? I mean, <laughs> that could offer small experimental places um, a lot more freedom, actually, than they've had in some ways. Well, on that somewhat hopeful note, thank you both so much for joining me and hope to speak to you again before too long. Thank you, Dorothy. Thanks, Dorothy. Alexandra Schwartz is a theater critic and staff writer at The New Yorker. Emily Witt is a staff writer and the author of the books Future Sex and Nollywood, The Making of a Film Empire. This has been The Political Scene. You can subscribe to this and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app and find more political analysis and commentary on newyorker.com. Feel free to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Our theme music is by Russell Gillespie. This program was produced by Alex Barron and Kylie Warner for newyorker.com. I'm Dorothy Wickenden.